All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you again for this morning. I thank you for, for the saints who are here. Um, for those who are not here, get them out of bed. Amen. All right, so we are in, what are we, chapter 10? We're in, ch- we're in chapter 10 of Nick Needham's 2,000 Years of Christ's Power. We are uh, pretty much in the 11th hour of the book. We're, we're almost at the end. Uh, some of these chapters we've been able to do in a week. Some of them take a little bit longer. So today, I am hoping uh, to get through the entire chapter today. Um, as we'll see later in the sermon, with, with, uh, with men and most likely with me, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. So we'll, we'll see what the Lord does with this time. There are five uh, headings uh, that, I, that I've divided this into uh, using the, the first four in Needham's book. Um, I am discarding the fifth point because... Um, I'm not really, I don't really know how the, how the Persian church, how the Nestorian church in Persia really has anything to do with us. So we'll look at the first four points spread out over five points in today. We'll be, we'll be uh, just reflecting or, or um, reviewing uh, the background difference between uh, the school of Antioch and the school of Alexandria as far as their hermeneutics and what what their emphases, emphases were, uh, and then we're going to look at the, um, the first, first heresy uh, in this chapter, Apollinarianism. Uh, we'll see uh, the, the, the response to Apollinarianism, Apollinarianism in Nestorius, uh, resulting in the third ecumenical council. Ecumenical means worldwide at the time, so the third council where all of the churches sent their bishops to convene. Uh, That's the Council of Ephesus. There is a very interesting second council of Ephesus, which is also called the Robbers Synod. Um, And then, Lord willing, we will get to Eutyches and the fourth ecumenical council, the Council of Chalcedon. All right, so uh, first one, and and this this should be mostly review, um, is to reflect on the, uh, the two schools that pretty much divided Christians as to how they thought and how they interpreted Scripture and, and what they believed concerning Christ. So who can remember what the two big schools were? They were both um, considered uh, mother cities or mother churches in the early church, and they both start with A, and they're both on the board. So this should be really easy points. Justin. Yes. So the, the Antioch and Alexandria, which um, uh, Antioch is going to be in Syria, which is directly north of, uh, of, of Palestine and Israel. Alexandria is where? Egypt. Egypt. Okay, so... One, uh, one preferred a, a, a literal approach to interpreting the scriptures, and that's Antioch, meaning that when you, when you are reading a text, you're going to let the, the features of the text dictate how you interpret it. You know, you're not going to approach a piece of a story, a piece of narrative, and think, oh, this is poetic. I, I, need, to, I need to interpret these symbolically. That was what Alexandria did with their preference on uh, allegorical interpretation because of their um, heavy influence by Neoplatonism, which says 
material things, earthly things, base things, you know, the, the, all the things that we, t- we feel and touch and see and relate to with our bodies, that is all, that's all this base, low-level, low-tier level of meaning and existence. We need, to, we need to transcend. We need to get to the spiritual. And so they would look for um, allegorical, uh, they would look for symbolic meaning in absolutely everything. Um, who, anyone remember when, when I uh, dissected the example of, um, Origin's example of the, the Good Samaritan, where everything in the story stands for something else? I, I looked up a couple others, uh, and when you're reading Genesis and you're reading about Abraham being called out from Ur of the Chaldeans, did you know that that is actually representative of uh, the, the transition of Stoic philosophers who leave their sensual understanding and come to a right understanding of the Lord. Did you know that? Well, th- thus says allegorical interpretation. Uh, the two pence that the Good Samaritan gave to the innkeeper, that's really the two ordinances of the church, baptism and communion. I didn't know that either. Oh. The, uh, the Euphrates River... The Euphrates River is the outflow of manners and conduct. It's not an actual literal river in Mesopotamia. Uh, in the book of Job, the page, uh, Job's three friends denote uh, the three heretics. His seven sons are the twelve apostles. His seven thousand sheep are God's faithful people, and his three thousand humpback camels are the depraved Gentiles. Again, these are details. These are conclusions that you wouldn't get just by approaching the text. So. Uh, Antioch, with a literal approach, uh, em- tended to emphasize the humanity of Christ more than Alexandria. Uh, and if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that is the presentation that we get of Jesus. You are presented with the man, Jesus, and as you work through the gospel, the gospel is arguing that this man, Jesus, is also the eternal God. The apostle, uh, the the fourth gospel of John, uh, takes the other way approach. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word tabernacled among us. And so you begin with the eternal God, and you're and as you go through the gospel, you're trying to. Uh, the gospel is bringing you to the conclusion that this God has manifested Himself in the man Jesus. So, um, Antioch. Their, uh, so that was their emphasis. Uh, if you can't see it, these are a bunch of USGIs on a hill. And, and uh, I found this image because this is a hill to die on. So their hill to die on for Antioch were two distinct, that, that means separate, doesn't mean stinky, it means separate. It means unmixed, unconvoluted, unblended. Jesus Christ has Dose natures. They don't, they're not mixed. They're not blended. They, they're not synthesized with each other. It's not half divine, half human, or one quarter, three quarters, whatever. Uh, two fully intact, 100% natures. Alexandria's emphasis, or um, uh, a hill to die on, which if you remember uh, what great controversy has just been concluded in the last couple decades. Justin, where's Justin? Justin's not here. Charlie, what what controversy has just been settled? 
concerning whether or not Jesus is divine. Right, Arian heresy. The Arian heresy. So they have just concluded this 50-something year long controversy uh, resulting in the statement that Jesus Christ is fully God. He's not partially God. He's not kind of God. He is God. He, he is fully consubstantial, uh, co-equal with the Father. So, so Alexandria's hill to die on is Jesus is God. He's fully God. Um, Antioch's fear, this is uh, someone uh, cowering in fear, their fear was that um, that Jesus's two natures, his human and his divine natures, uh, if they weren't clearly articulated, if they weren't clearly professed and, and adhered to, then you might get a, uh, a mixing or a blending of the two. So instead of him being fully God and fully man, he's more of like a supercharged uh, human, like the bionic man. Um, and, and his human nature, human qualities would bleed over and touch on his human nature, um, making him less God than God, or more man than man. Uh, Alexandria's fear is uh, if you don't insist that Jesus is God and that he is somehow less than God, then his salvation is going to be less than perfect because they, they firmly believe salvation must be God's doing. The results uh, it, of, um, of, of an overemphasized hill to die on and being completely inflexible is if, if you are so insistent that Jesus has two natures and you don't, you don't look into how that can play out with, with, with natures and persons and everything, they're eventually going to uh, lead to dualism where two natures must, if he has a human mind and a divine mind, that sounds like two minds. And what do you call two minds? Two people, yeah. So this is, this is going to be the, the, the logical conclusion of, uh, of an overemphasis on that, and th- this is Nestorianism, which we'll maybe get to, not this right. Uh, and then the Alexandrian result is going, if, if you are so insistent that he is one person and he's fully divine, you're going to uh, not really be concerned about, well, how human was he? You know, um, so they're going to uh, uh, conclude in ultimately... Uh, you know they're going to downplay his humanity, and the uh, the the hyper version that we'll get to in the four, in the fourth or fifth point is going to be uh, basically he's fully God, and as far as his humanity is concerned, he's basic his his human body is like a puppet, it's like a shell or a husk, animated by the divine, but he doesn't feel human feelings. He doesn't have a human mind, so he's not really one of us. Okay, so that that is the that's the background. That is that is uh, looking at what do the different camps think? Why do they think that way? What are they fearing, and where is it all ultimately going to lead? So now we get into the the, the heresy of the first heresy of the day, and that's Apollinarianism, named after its teacher Apollinarius, uh, who um, got some had some points going for him initially because he was a friend of Athanasius. Athanasius was a, was a good guy. Um, basically the champion of the, not Pelagian, but Arian heresy. Um, and he was a, uh, we could call him a, 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 
I guess a hyper Alexandrian. He was a, he was a free thinker. Um, he become, he was a bishop of Laodicea, Laodicea in 361. So this was during the um, Arian heresy, and he he teaches hyper Alexandrian thought. And by that, it's it's not he's not just not really emphasizing Jesus's humanity, but he actually says Jesus must not have had a human mind. Because again, what what's the logical conclusion if you if you say human mind plus divine mind that means two minds? Well, ergo, that means you must have two people, and they are they are convinced that Jesus is one person. You know, it's not it's not Jesus the man plus Christ the Spirit or or the divine Son, the Spirit. It's one person, and so he he uh, their hill to die on is he's fully God. So. He's not, he didn't really have a human mind. He's not really fully 100% man. Um, they thought that, uh, that the human mind was, was the cause and source of human weakness and sin. And was Christ weak or, or sinful? No. The ergo, if, if the human mind is the source of sin and Christ was sinless, Christ must not have a human mind right so uh so so he concludes that that the divine eternal son who's fully god merely resided in something like a human shell or a husk and um and he thought ironically like his antioch counterpart in Astorius after him you know, you have a human mind alongside a divine mind you have two minds two persons he doesn't want to go there now so that's what he's teaching no human mind less than fully human so the Orthodox response, uh, led uh, led by Gregory of Nazianzus, who's one of the Cappadocian fathers, he says, if Christ is the savior of human beings, he must have been fully human. If, 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 if we hope to have our, our sinful, depraved human minds saved and sanctified, and uh, you know they use the term deified or, or glorified, if that's going to happen to our sinful minds, Christ must have had a perfect human mind in order to save our human minds. They had a they had a saying, "What has not been taken up has not been he, uh, healed." And can anybody think of some passages or texts that might uh, lead us there from Scripture? Justin, I, I know you love Hebrews. Do you know what Hebrews 2.14 says? Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he likewise also partook of the same. Or Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a great high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, meaning he can sympathize, he can relate with our weaknesses. But he was one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. If you have a divine spirit merely inhabiting a human husk and not really feeling and not really being subjected to our temptations and the and the things that we think and feel then you don't have a great sympathizer who can relate to us. Um so it's uh his teachings are condemned at the at the Council of Constantinople 381. And this has, this led the Alexandrians to um, you know to avoid the, that conclusion of Apollinarius's teaching. They need to th- rethink how does Christ's 
perfect divine nature relate to his human nature? So this is followed up by, uh, you know, the, 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 the pendulum swings the other way. It, it, that was a hyper Alexandria. Well, let's see, Alexandria is on the, yeah, Alexandria is on the left. Uh, you had a hyper Alexandrian. The pendulum swings the other way, and now we're going to have a hyper what? A uh, hyper Antiochian. And this, uh, we're going to see the conclusion of, of Antioch's Hill to Dion being played out uh, through Nestorius. Now, he is a, a famous preacher in Antioch, uh, and he becomes the, uh, the patriarch, the, the bishop of Constantinople in 428. Now, this is going to be 46 years after the Council of Constantinople. Uh, so again, what was his Hilda Dion? Where the Alexandrians, what Hilda Dion was Jesus is fully God and he's one person. Antioch's was two distinct. No, that's, that's, that, that's, the, that's where you're going to end up. Nature's. Two distinct, fully intact natures. Are they, are they blended? No, they're fully distinct, fully in, intact. Now, what, what kicks this off is he hears this phrase, uh, Theo tacos, which means God's tacos. No, it doesn't mean that. It, uh, I think the correct way to pronounce it would be theotokos, which means... Um, Bear, God bearer, God birther, or the one who brings forth God. Uh, he hears this title being used of Jesus's mother Mary. Um, now this is this is a phrase that everyone was using of Mary at the time. And remember, Anti- uh, Antioch's and Nestorius's emphasis is two fully intact, uh, undiluted distinct natures, um, and when he hears the, this term being used, uh, birth giver or God bearer, you know, he doesn't really have a problem with the concept of Jesus, the man being born, but when you say God bearer, what does that kind of sound like? Or God birther or God begetter? Is, is the word man in the title? I need something. Okay. No. Okay. So what word is what word is in the title? God. Okay. So doesn't it kind of sound like like you're insinuating God has an origin, God had a beginning? You know, there was a time when, you know, it, for God to be born, there had to be a time where God was not. And again, that has been firmly settled in the Arian heresy. So he he is afraid of of um of 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 the of the possibility that this could lead people to think that God had a beginning. So he suggests, let's not use the term God-bearer. Let's use the term Christ-bearer. You know, I, we have no problem with the, with the idea that, that, uh, that Christ came into the world, that Christ began, uh, you know, the man, his human nature. But let's not, talk about, let's not have any of this talk about uh, God becoming or God... Uh, being begotten. So um, 
and, and, and uh, the fact that, that this was being used so much of Mary, as a side note, this, this did demonstrate that uh, veneration and exaltation of Mary was beginning to develop. It's not going to be anywhere near what it has been in the Roman Catholic Church for the last several centuries, but this is where it, be, this is where it begins. Um, so he suggests, this use Christ bearer or, or, or Christ birther. And there, uh, he has a response uh, in, a man, uh, in a man by the name of Cyril of Alexandria. Now, Cyril, this guy is a profound man. He's a, he's a deep thinker. He's theologically insightful. He's perceptive. He's smart. He's brilliant. He's, he's vivid in his, and verbose in his image, or in his um, language. But he has the attitude of a kicked bulldog. He is a he is a nasty man. He is a nasty man. Um, uh, Needham says uh, his theological brilliance uh, went hand in hand with an almost unlimited ability to turn doctrinal debates into personal quarrels of bitter ferocity. It was never enough to disprove an opponent's theology. He had also to destroy him as a man, too. Anybody know people like that? They can't, it's not just enough that, that, that they prove themselves right, but they need to prove that you're an idiot. So that, that was this guy. Um, what's uh, what's in, interesting to note is uh, there, was a, there was a normally gentle-hearted guy named Theodoret of Sirhus uh, who wrote when, when Cyril died, this is what he wrote, so, and this is this is what I would love to have on my epitaph, at la- or in the in the in the obituary. At last, at last, the villain has gone. The Lord, knowing that this man's spite has been growing daily and harming the body of the church, has cut him off like a plague and taken away the reproach of Israel. The living are delighted by his departure. But perhaps the dead are sorry at his arrival. Indeed, we ought to be alarmed. They might be so annoyed by his presence among them that they send him back. Great care must therefore be taken. It is, he's writing to the emperor. It is your holiness's, or maybe the pope, it's your holiness's special duty to tell those in charge of the funeral to lay a very large, very heavy stone on Cyril's grave in case he tries to come back and show his unstable mind among us once more. All right, so that 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 that's Cyril. He he's he's a bulldog. He's a bulldog. So, um, so this guy, he's uh, okay. So, so he hears he hears Nestorius saying, "Let's not use Theotokos. Let's use Christotokos. Let's use Christbearer." And that that's a red flag for Cyril. Um, because it, Cyril interprets this as, as, as an attack, maybe a subtle attack against the divinity of Christ. How come you don't want to use, why don't you want to uh, assume that the baby in Mary's womb was God? You know, so, so he has a theological uh, incentive to go after Nestorius. He also has um, personal and political reasons to go after um, Nestorius. Cyril, Cyril is the patriarch of Alexandria. Nestorius is the patriarch of Antioch. 
What have we already uh, said several times about these two schools? Right. They, they get together and have teen crumpets on a regular basis. No, they, they're at loggerheads with each other. They hate each other. So he, he has, uh, you know, he, he's defending his, his, his flag, his colors, by going after Nestorius. Also, he has a personal, uh, a personal vendetta. He hates all patriarchs of, uh, of Constantinople, which Nestorius came from Antioch. But remember, he became the, the patriarch of Constantinople. Cyril hates that because... Cyril is the nephew of a man named Theophilus. Now, does anybody remember that name? Not, not the one in Luke 1.1. 1, 1. Theophilus was the man who went after Chrysostom. Remember I, I said there was a, there was a, a, a patriarch who um, uh, went from town to town gathering up um, as much support as he could and building a case against Chrysostom. And he's the guy who... who um, uh, kept trying to get uh, Eudoxia and um, Arcadius to, to, to exile and banish Chrysostom. That's, that's Theophilus. Theophilus's nephew is Cyril. So his uncle has already, ha- uh, has already been um, defrocked and shamed because of what he did to Chrysostom. Rather than admit that that was wrong, Cyril has taken this personally. So he has, he has a, a family feud with the patriarch of Constantinople. And what's worse is he's actually from Antioch. So he has political, he has personal, and he has theological reasons to go after Nestorius. And so he writes viciously, which would probably be an understatement, uh, against Nestorius. Okay, so... So there is uh, some confusion that isn't really going to be settled if, unt, until uh, the Council of Chalcedon. And this is over the fact that we have two words that have a little overlap in their nuance. Have we covered this before? You remember? Okay, five points to anybody who can remember what the words were. I, they were up on the PowerPoint. Well, that, that, that's a compound word. The, the usia is one, so five points to House Lafferty. Be sure to spend them at the at the church store on the on your way out; otherwise, they 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 go invalid. So usia, which could mean originally could mean nature or person, because logically, traditionally, people only have one nature and one person. You don't. It's not common to find a being with multiple persons within the one being. That's kind of what makes God so exceptional. So you have uh, usia. What was the other one? It's longer. And, 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 and uh, it's actually a compound word, hypostasis or hypostasis, which could also mean nature or person. Now that uh, that is... Uh, that was settled with uh, usia meaning nature and hypostasis meaning person. And even though that was settled, it, it hasn't really gotten around. And it hasn't really like um, you know Daniel and and you had a you had some time in administration, so you know that when changes are made up at the top, it takes time for for all of the changes and all the formalities and the rules and principles and and the implications of all those changes to really work its way down into the bottom level, right? Okay, so even though the previous council of um, 
Constantinople settled it, not everyone is on the same page. And we have this very same problem uh, using the word physis, which can mean person or nature, and hypostasis, which can still mean person or nature. So um, Cyril and almost all of Alexandria had a saying that they loved. This was their motto, that the Christ has one incarnate physis in the Logos. Um, so when, when, when we say Christ has one incarnate physis, say, should I ask what, what you think he means or what it sounds like? Yeah, what does that sound like? It sounds like he's saying Christ has one incarnate physica- physicality or f- physic, right? We, we, we see the word physis, we think physical. That's exactly what, uh, what Nestorius and everyone, um, uh, you know, from Antioch think. W- what do you think Cyril actually means? What does Christ have one of according to the East, according to Alexandria? And no, uh, no other, other word, other possible meaning of physis. Person, yeah. So Cyril means Christ has one, and it, and it, it's, it comes across awkwardly, but he's, what he's saying is Christ is one incarnate person in the Logos. That's theologically accurate. The, the man, Jesus, is the divine son. There's one person. But Nestorius and, and everybody from Antioch hears Cyril say that, and it sounds like he's saying you have one nature between between the man Jesus and the divine son. So do you get how this is con- I mean I I've been reading this for the last several days and I'm even I don't even know exactly how to articulate it. It's confusing language, right? Right? So So there is a council uh, called to deal with this. It's it's a Cyril puts things in motion but he it, it's formally called by the by the Pope and the Emperor. This is the third ecumenical, third worldwide council, and Sir, uh, I put Cyrus Cyril. I will not change that right now because that would take too much time. Cyril, being the um, the fair man that he is, starts the council, convenes the council before Nestorius's support shows up from Antioch. You know, the Uber didn't get there in time. So Nestorius is there by himself for however many days or weeks or, or however long this, this was going on. You know, it, 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 it would be very much like being in court and, and showing up for a trial where you're having to present and defend your position with, with, with laid out arguments and you are by your lonesome and the other team has a, has a uh, the other side has a, a crackpot team of, you know, experts you know, one guy against a whole squad, who has the advantage? Do you think one guy standing up by himself could maybe get intimidated and maybe not present his arguments very well? So uh, that and the fact that the emperor is pro-Alexandrian, things go uh, in favor of Cyril and the Alexandrian Christology, which is he's one person and he's definitely God, and we're not really concerned for really how much man he is. So uh, the language confusion is not even addressed. 
Nestorius is, is kicked out, and Pelagianism was also uh, condemned as a heresy. Um, Nestorius' supporters arrive late, and they hold their own council, and they, they convene and say that Cyril needs to be kicked out. So you have two councils, both kicking the other guy out. The emperor is, uh, favors Cyril. He favors Alexandrian theology. And so he, he, looks at, um, he looks at the Antioch team. He says, nice try. I don't recognize your council. Uh, invalid. So um, Nestorius is deposed. Okay. Um, the formula of union. I just want to make sure that I got all of the um, outcomes of this, uh, that, I, that, I, that I said them all. Yeah, so uh, Emperor Theodosius steps in. He doesn't recognize um, the Antioch uh, Antiochene council. He undoes everything that they ruled. He, um, they had kicked Cyrus, uh, Cyril out. He puts Cyril back in, and then he deposes and exiles Nestorius. So... Um, so he knows, um, he knows just because this council concluded favoring the Alexandrians, um, he, he, you know, there's a saying that says, uh, he who's convinced against his, is that way, how does it go? He who's convinced against his will is unconvinced still. So he knows, um, that the, uh, Antiochian bishops, you know, they're, they're not convinced. They're, they're angry at what happened. They vocalized the fact that they were angry with what happened. And so uh, Emperor Theodosius, he attempts, he, he makes uh, uh, an attempt to restore peace with this thing called the Formula of Union in 433. And he takes um, the uh, Nestorius' uh, lead support guy. His, his, his name is, um, I think he was the, I think he was a bishop. John of Antioch. So he takes John, and he takes Cyril, who's the, the head of the Alexandrian school, and he puts them in the room together. And so, you know, you've seen that picture. Um, this is this is our makeup shirt, and the two kids are in this one giant shirt, and they basically have to learn to get along. That's basically what the formula of union is. They're sat in a room. Um, and the emperor says, "You guys need to work something out. You need to you need to play nice and get along." Um, so, the formula of union uh, gets. Um, let's see, Antioch. The Antiochenes have to accept the fact that Nestorius is banned. They ca- they can't get their patriarch back. They, you know, their 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 head pastor is gone. They have to accept that. Um, they also. Ha- uh, Remember, Antioch doesn't like the term Theotokos because that suggests that God had a beginning. Um, the formula of union said the Antioch guys had to accept that term, even though they don't like it, even though it sounds really weird and it sounds suggestively heretical to them, tough. Have to deal with it. Uh, Cyril and Alexandria, on, their, on the other hand, he needs to produce a statement. Remember, he, he had this weird... I guess I didn't put it, I didn't write it out. He has this weird saying that Christ has one incarnate physis. They loved that saying. Well, the formula of union says that Cyril had to 
put it in other words that was less Alexandrian, more Antiochian. So you can see that there's an attempt at compromise for both sides. Uh, So that formula of union was signed in 433. It doesn't even last 10 years because uh, John of Antioch and Cyril both die in the early 440s. I'm not, I can't. I can't do that. So we're gonna we're gonna stop at this point because I I could not go through get through this in four minutes. Uh, but maybe I could open this up for questions. It's confusing, isn't it? Okay, maybe maybe a little bit of review will help. What um. What were the uh, what were the two hermeneutical approaches? How did they view things differently? Yeah, and, and what and what were the two what were the names of the two schools? Yeah, Antioch and Alexandria. What was their what was Antioch's hill to die on? Jack. Nope. Nope. Two, two is right. That is going. That is going to be the. That's going to be the conclusion or where they're going to go, which is bad. But they conclude he has um, two minds because he has two what? Nature. Yes, yes. They Antioch says Jesus is fully man and fully God. So if, if he's fully man, fully God, each one has a mind. So he has a human mind and a divine mind. But then the error is what? Emphasis on the humanity and not on the... Well, no, the... the, the yeah, the, the error is is if you... Because we, we try to exp- understand things and relate things in terms that we can relate to, and right? And things that we can... That we see and relate to. So if things... If something has two minds, what would, what, what would we... Log- what would we... What might we logically conclude? And, and despite it being wrong, two minds equal what? Two people. Well, two people. Yeah. Okay. So, do, do you see the, do you see the progression? Two natures, which is right, which is good. Jesus has two natures: fully God, fully man. Two natures equal two minds. And I think I think that's still that's still good. He has a human mind. He has a divine mind. Here is the error. Two minds uh, suggests what? Two people. Yes. Is that right or is that wrong? Are there two people within the the one person of Jesus Christ? It's wrong, though. Okay. Alexandrian. What was their hill to die on? Remember, Charlie, what did the Arian... Uh, 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 controversy settle on Jesus is not partially God. Not Jesus is fully divine. Je- and, yeah, and fully man, fully God, fully man, and In he one is person. one person. Right. So, what is the 
what is the uh, the erroneous conclusion because of an overemphasis on that hill to die on? The Alexandrian hill to die on? Yeah, he's it, he's he's one person, and he is fully divine. The the human body was just a husk being. Yeah, he he is he is less than less than human. Do you, do you guys get that that all of this controversy is a over a confusion of language and b over the fact that we are trying to understand God entering into the world and taking human nature upon himself. That doesn't happen every day. That's not something that we naturally look at and observe and can, you know, rec- record and take notes and put in a little beaker and test and whatever. So okay, good. You guys get really what is at the heart uh, of, of the issue. Any questions before we close? I was just going to ask if uh, uh, Emperor Theodosius, he, you were saying that uh, Nestorius was deposed. Yes. Did that in- involve any empirical exile or anything like that? Or Yes. And um, I read in Earl Blackburn's book that he actually – um, he either suggested that he be exiled. I mean, regardless of, of whether he suggested or not, he he accepted it. And uh, Needham doesn't say anything about it, but Blackburn says that um, we, we don't hear about Nestorius until like 20 or 30 or like many years later where he actually writes in support of the creed of Chalcedon, which is completely orthodox. So it's it's suggestive, like... I, uh, when we call when we call um, Nestorius a heretic, that doesn't mean you know that he has devil horns and he's scheming. How can I wreck the church and 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 you know lead God's people astray? You know, sometimes heretics are just simply deceived people and erroneous people. They're a heretic because they propagate something that's not true. Um, um, it is likely that he came around. Uh, because of uh, what Blackburn says about him supporting the Chalcedonian Creed, it's likely that he came around to orthodoxy. So you could, one could conclude that in this circumstance, the use of imperial power within the church was successful. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, and, and uh, you know, as, as we've touched on before, and as you intimated when you, when you t- touched on sacralism, um, sacralism is a double-edged sword. If the guy with the power is orthodox and believes good theology, then that's good for the church. But what happens when he dies and is succeeded by a guy who does not have good um, theology and who favors the bad theology? You know, it's just it's just a roll of the dice. Um, and this goes back to one of the reasons I said why I wanted to go through church history is we get to see um, through God bringing in, you know, popes and, and kings and emperors and um, nobles and people who have power and influence. God brings in uh, the right men at the right time to build and keep his church despite what happens. And if, if this was just an organization of men, um, you know, with all the infighting and with, with all the sin, with all the, with all the problems in the church, if this was just an organization of people, not being upheld and built by a transcendent God, it would have fallen apart years, millennia ago. All right, we need to close. Lord, thank you again for this morning. 
thank Lord, thank you for your grace to us, uh, as well as your grace and mercy to your people throughout the throughout the centuries. Um, thank you for uh, for being patient and long suffering with us <clears throat> and with your people, despite their setbacks, despite their warts. Um, thank you for for being gracious and blessing them with skills and talents and knowledge and understanding, um, so as to keep and preserve your church. Amen.